Welcome to Dangerous Wisdom, a journey into mystery and a gateway to the mind of nature and the nature of mind. This is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, happy to be here with you so that together we can create a culture of wisdom, love, and beauty. Auspicious interbeing to you and yours, my friends. Today we begin with a story. Once upon a time, two young women, Sophia and Melanthea, became hungry for wisdom, love, and beauty. They experienced something we might call an existential crisis, a crisis of sufficient intensity to motivate them to action. We can imagine it as a search for an answer to the question, Who am I, really, and how shall I live? How do I make the best use of this precious life? We can imagine some experience of suffering in their lives and a desire to understand and alleviate that suffering. Perhaps Melanthea's family had arranged for her to marry a man old enough to be her father. Perhaps Sophia faced a life of poverty and menial labor. Or perhaps they enjoyed relatively comfortable circumstances and yet they felt some affinity for love wisdom, a calling, a yearning, a sense of lack, a sense of emptiness, even a sense of dread. At some level, in some way, these young women experienced dissatisfaction with the way they lived their lives, a clear or vague sense of discomfort or dissatisfaction related to their experience of life, and they decided to go looking for a philosopher who might set them on the right path. Many philosophical schools thrived at that time, and the women didn't find it easy to choose one. They knew of one school which taught its students that all motion is an illusion, and that all is actually one. They knew of another school that taught stillness is an illusion, and all is in flux. They knew of schools based in various kinds of sacred mathematics. They had heard about dozens of schools, but couldn't see one as standing out definitively from the rest. So they picked one that seemed sensible enough, but after staying for almost a year, they became convinced that the head of the school wasn't really someone who had gotten past the kinds of problems that brought these two women to seek a path of love wisdom in the first place. In short, the head of the school did not seem very wise, compassionate, graceful, or in any significant way liberated. While he claimed that ordinary people were asleep in their lives, he didn't really seem very awake. Sophia and Melanthea weren't sure what that meant exactly, but somehow, they felt this guy didn't embody it. Sophia and Melanthea agreed that it would do no good to remain in this school, but they also realized that at the rate they were going, it might take them years and years just to sift through teachers in order to find one who seemed genuinely wise, compassionate, and somehow free. They thought it best to split up, vowing to one another that if either of them found someone, 
who seemed genuinely sagely, they would seek out the other and bring her to this teacher. And they went off in separate directions, both with seemingly reliable leads as to the location of good philosophers. Sophia had over a month-long journey ahead of her to get to the teacher she had decided to seek. As she neared her destination, she passed through a small city, and there she saw a young woman of exceptional bearing. The woman looked so peaceful, so present, that it attracted Sophia's gaze and held her. The woman's face exuded warmth and joy, and she remained totally undistracted by all the commotion of the town. Sophia watched her with great curiosity. The woman had a bowl in her hands, and she seemed to be going door to door begging for food. This woman did not even have food, and yet she seemed happy and at ease, poised and graceful in her every movement. Sophia thought, what luck! I may have found the teacher I sought by sheer coincidence. She approached the woman and said, Excuse me, dear lady. I couldn't help noticing you. You look like a woman at peace with herself in the world. Are you a philosopher? The young woman replied, No, sister, I am only a student of love wisdom, but I am fortunate to have met a true teacher. What is this philosopher's teaching? asked Sophia. Dear sister, I am new in the practice of this path of love wisdom. I cannot really explain the teachings, but I can perhaps try to give you some sense of it in brief. Sophia said, Well, friend, I am not one who takes delight in chatter. I would like to hear whatever you can share. The woman smiled and responded to Sophia. Well, one may say it like this. Of things arising from a cause, the philosopher teaches. The philosopher also teaches their transformation. Such is the wondrous love wisdom from the master of meditation. At these words, Sophia experienced a profound epiphany. She stood breathless for a moment, and she said to the woman, if it arises from a cause, then it cannot be permanent. The young woman smiled and said that Sophia should come and receive further instruction from the philosopher. Sophia agreed, but said that first she had to go and get her friend. She felt so excited that it never occurred to her how stupid this teaching sounded. She simply gave herself over to the epiphany it produced, feeling that somehow she just couldn't be the same as she had been. Sophia traveled many days in search of her friend, and it so happened that Melanthea saw her first from a distance. She rushed up to Sophia, both in joy at seeing her friend again, and also out of excited curiosity. She said, Sophia, you look refreshed. Your face shines with happiness. Have you found a true teacher of love wisdom? It seems I have, dear friend. 
Well, what does this philosopher teach? Sophia gave Melanthea a brief account of her journey, and in so doing she said, Now, my friend, you understand that, strictly speaking, I haven't even met this philosopher yet. Nevertheless, here is the gist of the teaching as I received it. Of things arising from a cause, the philosopher teaches. The philosopher also teaches their transformation. Such is the wondrous love-wisdom from this master of meditation. Hearing these words, Melanthea experienced an unexpected epiphany. She looked her friend in the eyes and said, Oh, my goodness, if it arises from a cause! Sophia looked at her and smiled, and then they burst out in laughter. From the joy of sharing this epiphany, they laughed even harder from the mutual realization of how stupid this teaching might sound to others. The epiphany yielded profundity, while cursory analysis seemed to yield banality. They wanted to further analyze the teaching itself and receive more detailed instruction. Still, they also noted a sense of intimacy, subtlety, and great depth, a feeling that this insight involved a freeing up in their very way of being. With this sense of freedom, they went off to learn from the philosopher. We might note here that the metaphysical commitments of this philosophy amount to the same basic commitments many scientists would take as necessary to engage in experimental science. Such a philosophy seems to have a rational footing. We would, of course, want to hear a story about these causes and conditions and their transformation, but something about even this primitive statement seems to have the capacity to relieve suffering. This school of philosophy seems to offer the potential of some kind of liberating effect, and it seems to involve a rational commitment to basic cause-and-effect thinking that can actually help people suffer less and enjoy greater well-being. Such a philosophy seems worth considering. Was there anything like this in ancient Greece, or have I made the whole thing up? It seems to me that most of the schools of philosophy in the ancient Greek and Hellenistic and Roman periods aimed to help people live well. And they all must have thought their foundations reasonable. Most of the schools we now study in the dominant culture seem to share some core commitment to reasonableness and rationality, even if they don't always strike our modern ear as fully reasonable or rational. Of course, even in times past, what might strike members of one school as reasonable could strike members of another as metaphysical fancy. However, we don't expect a school of philosophy to demand, say, circumcision or faith in things that sound quite superstitious, at least not in the context in which they originally arise. One could think of the Pythagorean prohibition against eating beans, for instance, as being a a bit superstitious, who knows? 
As for the tale of Sophia and Melanthea, there was indeed a school of love wisdom that had at its heart a story pretty much like theirs. It's not the origin story of the philosophy, obviously, but a story that is central to the early period of that philosophy. In the original version, the women were, well, unsurprisingly, the women were men. However, there were many women involved in this school of love wisdom, including two very much revered women named Kema and Upalavana. Moreover, one of the earliest collections of women's writing, perhaps the earliest collection of women's writing in the whole world, comes from this very real school. And it's a collection of verse written by various women who describe their experiences of transformation brought about by the practice of this philosophy. Here's one of the poems by a woman named Puna. Puna, grow full with good qualities, like the moon on the fifteenth day, with discernment at total fullness, burst the mass of darkness. Here's a poem from a woman known only as Sumangala's mother. So freed, so freed, so thoroughly freed am I from my pestle, my shameless husband and his sunshade-making, my moldy old pot with its water-snake smell. Aversion and passion I cut with a chop. Having come to the foot of a tree, I meditate, absorbed in the bliss. What bliss! Finally, here is an imaginary dialogue between a woman named Soma and the personification of ignorance, who is appropriately male, the latter speaking first. This is the personification of ignorance speaking to Soma. And he says, It is hard to get to the place that sages want to reach. It's not possible for a woman, especially not one with only two fingers' worth of wisdom. Soma replies, What does being a woman have to do with it? What counts is that the heart is settled and that one sees what really is. What you take as pleasures are not for me. The mass of mental darkness is split open. Know this, evil one. You are defeated. You are finished. We don't often hear about such verses in an introductory course in philosophy. We wouldn't want to imagine love wisdom making women happy, would we? We wouldn't want women thinking they could leave behind their pots and their husbands and tell off a male personification of ignorance, would we? We wouldn't want to let too many people know about love wisdom that offers a path to bliss, right? We wouldn't want to invite people to make a break, a rupture, with the incoherent conventions of their society, would we? Returning to the teaching Sophia 
received from the young woman in our story, this very episode, in its real-life version, became an archetypal moment in the school of philosophy in question. In the original story, taken as historical fact, the teaching was pretty much the same as the one we discussed earlier, and it became one of the most widely memorized verses in the parts of the world where this philosophy arose. And so just remember then, this was a story about two men who went out seeking a true teacher, and one of them did in fact see a person of very magnetizing comportment. The person, so this young man sees a a student of philosophy who seems to have a, a very exceptional bearing and grace and clarity and presence. And he was struck by it. And he said, what the heck is your deal, man? And the fellow said, hey, I'm really new, but I can tell you a basic teaching. And it went something like this. Ye dama hetupubhava, tesam hetum tatagato aha, tesanka yo nirodo, evam vadi maha samano. One translator renders that as follows. Whatever phenomena arise from a cause, the Tathagata teaches, and their cessation he teaches as well. Such is the teaching of the great contemplative. Evam vadi mahasamano. Mahasamano, maha. You might, if you recognize a little Pali in Sanskrit there, maha the great samano meditator. Tathagata signifies the sagehood, the communally recognized embodiment of wisdom, compassion, and grace, wisdom, love, and beauty that this philosopher's followers saw in him. So they saw what what Sophia saw, but at an even amplified level. And these lines refer to Siddhartha, the person we, we think of as the Buddha, And there's a way in which this verse does get at the heart of Siddhartha's teaching. It makes the philosophy rational and verifiable, though the verification may demand that we put our whole body and mind on the line. You don't just get to verify it without investment, without passion. We may have to engage in the teachings in a way that allows us to arrive at the kind of realization that Sophia and Melanthea experience. So, if, for instance, it seems very unlikely that Mary, very many of you listening right now currently find yourselves basking in the glow of a good hard laugh, erupting from a profound epiphany triggered by this verse, Ye Dhamma Hetupavava. And we should inquire maybe into that as well, though we can't get too far into that in the present moment. Suffice it to say for now that in general, Big insights require time and effort. We have to imagine that Sophia and Melanthea had already spent a year at somebody else's school, and it wasn't a total waste. They were training their mind in some way, and they were particularly hungry, and maybe they had lots of other fortuitous circumstances that allowed them to hear that verse and have it trigger an epiphany. For most of us, it's not going to happen just because I said that verse Please email me if you woke up suddenly, you had a big epiphany. But I think for most of us, it sounds dumb. It sounds like, oh, okay, really? That's great. 
I think the first thing to note is that the verse sounds distinctly unreligious, which might be surprising for a philosophical tradition we now generally classify as religious. And so this the fact that this is so deeply associated with Buddhist philosophy, especially in its origins, should make us rethink. Of course, it now seems to have some religious elements, but that's because the philosophy is committed to meeting people where they're at. And these lines, this, these simple lines characterized early Buddhist philosophy the way the cross currently characterizes Christianity. So I think a lot of people don't realize that because it's not, it's not part of what we're usually taught when we're taught about Buddhist philosophy, that this verse had the place of the cross in ancient Buddhist philosophy. The Bodhi tree naturally goes together with the Buddha and his awakening, and that too had a presence in the early uh, practice of the philosophy and the early emerging iconography that grew up around the philosophy. And thankfully, that remains in our mind because the Bodhi tree is very powerful, and you see that they're both axis mundi, they're both world axis uh, archetypes. The cross is the tree. It is also the sacred tree. The Bodhi tree and the cross are very resonant archetypally. For our, our soul, it's the same language in a way. It's nice, of course, that Buddha's tree was planted in the ground as opposed to Christ was cut down. And you know, that's, um, I think, significant too. That is not something to just gloss over, but at a deeper level, the soul can still see the symbols in their deeper resonance. And But the, the verse that once upon a time was so strongly associated with Buddhist philosophy and the core teaching of interwovenness that goes with it, that might help clarify the nature of Buddhist philosophy in such a way as to help us avoid some of the confusions about it that persist to this day. And I've, I've said this many times. It's always funny to me because I'm Greek and my lineage is is all the way back to Socrates and the pre-Socratic philosophers. And Socrates is seen as the consummate philosopher and seen as very rational. That's usually how he's presented in the university, but he was a pretty religious guy. Whereas Buddha, this is a very rational thing that we're hearing here, this verse. And we think of Buddhism as a religion rather than first and foremost, it's a philosophy. And then, yes, it may have, as it evolved, develop some religious elements. Okay, but let's let's stick with the interesting questions here. I mean, that's all fine, but one thing we might ask is whether other philosophies also have students with this kind of epiphany that we saw with Sophia and Melanthea. I mean, isn't it because students have epiphanies that they follow a philosophical school? I don't know if that's true or not, or what kind of epiphany we're talking about. And so that this is also part of the question. What is the nature of this sort of insight that Sophia and Melanthea had? I think at times we might feel almost converted if we suddenly find ourselves agreeing with an argument made by a philosopher. We may find their explanation of something so convincing that we think of it as somehow, in some way, more or less correct. We just think, oh, he's, they've really got that right. And there, this happens, of course, it, as philosophy left its real therapeutic dimension, its real spiritual 
profoundly spiritual commitment and became much more the activity of the professors, then that became much more emphasized so that when people read Kant, they sometimes become converted. And I've met people who have had the experience with Kant that for them is like the experience that the women were describing in their poems. Now, obviously, there's a contextual question there. If I read Kant, do I really should I really consider myself as liberated as the students of the Buddha thought of themselves? Boy, that's a hard question to answer, isn't it? But we'd have to watch how the Kantians live, wouldn't we? And ask, do they have the same kind of bearing and presence that the students of Buddha had? And so sometimes the epiphanies that we have really are on reflection a little bit more intellectual. And we might, with some challenging philosophical material, arrive at what feels like an epiphany, and it can really feel powerful because I've had these sorts of intellectual insights too. They're very different. But you have to have had what we might call the um, more mystical insight that Sophia and Melanthea experienced to know the difference between a merely intellectual insight. And of course, the wisdom traditions make space for the, once you have had a taste of the mystical insights, the intellectual things can actually contribute to them and deepen them. So it's all really nuanced. But the point is is that the intellectual style insights that we might be familiar with don't fit what Sophia and Melanthea experienced. At least that's not the intention. Maybe I didn't tell the story well enough. But if you have had that kind of shift, you know that it's not really intellectual. It doesn't seem quite right. But what's odd about it is that, again, we have a very simple philosophical expression. Things have causes. That doesn't take intellectual effort the way understanding the equivalence of humanity, autonomy, and the categorical imperative in Kant's moral philosophy does or the way trying to make sense of some aspect of Nietzsche, Hegel, or Aristotle would. There we really have to wrestle in a different way from hearing things have causes. It's such a silly sentence. Now there are things in Siddhartha, uh, or Buddha's philosophy, that require a good deal of effort and wrangling. And then as the philosophy got elaborated and developed through people like Nagarjuna, and then you get these just incredible intellects like Dogen and Longchenpa, these elaborations can, can really challenge the mind. But even the, the discourses of the Buddha can challenge the mind. So there are, there are things in there that re- require intellectual effort and wrangling. But those we can set aside on the grounds that in some way the verse that we're talking about does seem to get at something truly essential to Buddha's philosophy, but on when you read it, it doesn't sound very intellectually challenging. The simplicity of the formulation presents difficulty for equating some level of agreement with a philosopher to the experience that Sophia and Melanthea had because it's just not a very controversial or exciting statement in a certain way, at least on the surface. Sophia and Melanthea seem to feel some intimacy in the experience. The insight seems to relate to the rather intimate questions 
and experiences that brought them to philosophy, and it seems to get at the core of their being in some sense, such that they feel changed in some important way from having heard this, on the surface, silly verse. We might go so far as to call their insight transformative, assuming at the very least that transformation has some measurable traction in their lives, something that today we would verify empirically by means of social scientific and psychophysiological data, such as questionnaires administered to Sophia, Melanthea, and their friends, and also maybe brain scans and blood work and genetic profiling, looking at their epigenetic profile and so on. And if we looked at all that, we would expect to see something. We would expect to see something there that would indicate that they had experienced a change. We might liken this kind of transformative insight to something that certain people seek when they go to a psychotherapist. It's maybe not exactly like that, but maybe it's closer. It gets us in the direction. It's, it's not merely intellectual. In such a situation, a person might experience some level of existential questioning, a phrase that we might use to characterize the experience of wondering who we are and how we should live including maybe a certain presence of anxiety and depression in our lives that these kinds of questions can produce. You know, if you really, really are wondering, well, who am I and what am I here for? What is this all about? It can really produce uh, some level of dread, depression, uncertainty, discomfort, And then there might be suffering in our lives which furthers that or contributes to the whole thing in some way. And so maybe a person goes to a therapist because something seems wrong in their life, maybe painfully so, and they want to understand the situation. And the symptoms that they might experience, they might describe as maybe anxiety, depression, meaninglessness, lack of fulfillment, deep sense of dissatisfaction or dread, something's just not right, I just don't feel fulfilled. I'm anxious all the time, I'm lonely and yet I'm married and I have friends. Or maybe I'm lonely and I don't have any friends. Whatever it might be. Now, in the best case, assuming that we can't isolate some biological cause, the person doesn't have a tumor or something obvious like that, the therapist might be able to work with their client and help them arrive at some kind of insight or a series of insights into the nature of their situation that seems to heal. Perhaps the client has really only come for some existential questioning and that's it. (laughs) Or maybe it's more narrow. You know, it's like a little bit of existential questioning or they just want to feel a little less stuck or a little less anxious so maybe it's it's my whole life is a mess, or maybe it's something more focused. Maybe a young man goes to a therapist because he's just ended the third in a series of painful relationships. And over the course of a few weeks or a few months, the therapist helps this man to see that he's been dating people who resemble his father or his mother in some way. And then he further sees that there are some deep, unresolved issues around his father or his mother. And we all roll our eyes at that, but that's not silly. People can have traumatic childhoods. Maybe you roll your eyes because you didn't, or you did and you just went in a different direction with it. But for many people, 
it really can. It's not useless to look at one's childhood and ask some questions. It's not necessarily the best approach or only approach for every single situation, of course. But let's assume that this person we're imagining, he doesn't solve all the issues, but let's just grant that he at least does have this significant insight into himself at the moment that he sees that these relationship partners all resemble one of his parents in some important way. And we grant that they didn't happen to have any conscious access to this before therapy. And that can be hard for us to understand, but that's what the unconscious is. So that means the person was really going into these relationships sincerely thinking that they were interested in the person or whatever, and then it's catastrophe after catastrophe, and then they really, it does come as a, an epiphany, a revelation. Oh my gosh, I've been dating my own parent. And not because of some simple-minded Oedipal thing, but just because of some issue that's unresolved. It's not like, you know, oh yes, I've been attracted to my own parent all these years. No, it's that there's some deep issue that's unresolved, and they're trying to resolve it. And so now this young person, young man, may feel very happy. And maybe he hasn't resolved all his psychological issues, we could say, but maybe he has a whole lot more to learn about himself. Perhaps he can at least bring a richer awareness to his next relationship, and that would be wonderful. Or we might imagine an alcoholic who has a moment of clarity in which they suddenly see what their drinking has been and that they don't have to do it anymore. That that really is it. And they they just see it. That maybe it's all self-medication because they actually need to quit their job or because of childhood trauma or whatever it is. And they just see. And they feel released. And they know now. They just know. Something in them says, no, this is it. I'm going to stop. Now, in these kinds of comparisons, we have to leave aside a lot of issues. For instance, we might hear stories of people staying in psychotherapy for years, arriving at many seemingly, seemingly important insights, but not really experiencing a big transformation and a lasting transformation so that they feel, hey, I I really have been liberated. It's almost like it's been intellectually entertaining. And we might also have questions about where we should search for these kinds of insights. What do the interventions need to include if these insights are going to be able to gain significant traction in our life? Do we need to look in childhood? Do we need to look in current narratives and beliefs that we have, our current style of thought, our behaviors, our relationship dynamics? Should we look in dreams? Should we look in our way of reasoning? Should we look at the assumptions guiding our reasoning? Should we look at the ways we use our attention? Should we look at our relationship to our values? Where do we look to find the insights that we really need to transform? Now, we could try to come back to questions like that another time or maybe circle back to them a little bit, touch on them a little bit later. But for now, we can note a similarity between the cases of therapy that we just considered and similar ones that we could discover in the literature of psychotherapy. Consider cases like that on the one hand 
and the case of Sophia and Melanthea on the other. Now, the insights, in, don't, they don't seem to offer something conceptually challenging on their surface, but they still seem to involve a level of complexity and profundity arising from the intimate and subtle causal interactions in our life. Somehow our childhood, for instance, can influence us in such deep ways that patterns of behavior emerge in childhood which subsequently affect seemingly unrelated decisions and actions far into adulthood and even old age. Though the suggestion that our life circumstances can affect our behavior seems trivial in one sense, seeing how these actions manifest can make for such a surprising challenge that when we catch some of them in action, it comes as a tremendous insight. In the case of a breakthrough like the one Sophia and Melanthea experience, we have there something even more personal, more intimate, and more thoroughgoing in an inward way, and also more global and comprehensive in an outward way, such that it strikes them with even greater force as an insight. We might liken it to suddenly realizing we had spent our whole life pursuing the wrong beloved or a series of wrong beloveds in every detail of our thinking, speaking, and action. Or that we had spent our whole lives medicating ourselves, numbing our senses and our awareness, altering our thinking. And suddenly, all of that drops away. And instead of feeling disappointed or angry that we've deluded ourselves for all these years, we find the whole situation tremendously funny. We feel elated in and through and as this insight because it frees us from a kind of global bondage or delusion that we had ourselves caught up in. And even more so because this insight itself is a sense of peace and joy, a sense of freedom, compassion, true wisdom and wonder. The insight somehow combines the obvious and the totally inconceivable. Now, if we were addicted to heroin, we would feel a whole lot better in body and mind if we broke the addiction. But that would not compare to breaking the addiction by means of a life of vitality, inner calm, self-understanding, and an experience of falling in love with our lives, falling in love with the world, including the friends and other beloved ones who helped us through the dark night of our soul. You see that difference? One, I quit heroin. The other one, I fell in love with life. And profound vitality, peace, clarity, understanding, real wisdom, love, compassion, beauty, awakened.
Perhaps the most important point here has to do with the incredible nature of the experience of insight shared by Sophia and Melanthea. We make a huge mistake when we fail to appreciate the depth of this experience, and an equally huge mistake if we think Sophia and Melanthea became totally enlightened, even if they experienced a transformative and healing insight. So, we, on the one hand, might be too dismissive, and on the other hand, we might act like, oh my goodness, well, that must be huge. And we often do that with ourselves. A lot of times we think we've had a big insight and we're just enlightened. According to the Pali Canon, the oldest known layers of Buddhist philosophy, Siddhartha, shortly after awakening or enlightenment, he became vexed. Vexed. It's Sometimes people are puzzled by the vexation of the Buddha. How did he become vexed? Well, after an inconceivably profound and transformative series of insights, he said something like this. If I taught this love wisdom to others, they would not understand me. And so, after reflecting like that, he spontaneously composed a verse. And it's, they call it stanzas never before heard, like no one else ever had this experience because he's supposed to be the most awakened person ever. And so, he's saying nobody else ever really saw this. And so he, the word he used for love wisdom is the Dharma, or in Pali they don't put the D-H-A-R-M-A, they say D-H-A-M-M-A, Dhamma. And so the verses that he spontaneously composed, stanzas never before heard, went like this. Enough of teaching the Dhamma that even I found hard to reach. For it will never be perceived by those who live in lust and hate. Human beings died in lust, and whom a cloud of darkness laps, will never see what goes against the stream, is subtle, deep, and hard to see, abstruse. So the Dharma is the teaching, the Dhamma is the teaching, the love wisdom which also means the reality that transformed Siddhartha into the Buddha, the awakened one. So there's a there's kind of multiple meanings for Dharma. On the one hand, Dharma means reality. Uh, it has the connotation in the broader Hindu context of one's duty or role in life. But it, the, in Buddhist philosophy in particular, it means reality. And it also means the teachings about reality. It also psychologically means things. So the, the 10,000 dharmas are all the things that we experience. So old Siddhartha here, he just wants to say that trying to teach this philosophy seems an impossible task because who's going to understand it? And on the one hand, that might seem crazy. Here a philosopher has experienced something like an Archimedean moment. You remember Archimedes, he's sitting in his bathtub and he has this insight into specific gravity. It was a really big insight. And he felt so excited, so joyful, he jumps out of that bathtub and he runs through the streets naked, shout, shouting, Eureka! I have found it! 
So even to this day, if you want to know what Archimedes discovered, well, someone or other can give you an account. They can tell you. It can be told. In crystal clear detail, we can explain specific gravity. We can explain what happened in that bathtub with Archimedes. It's it's easy to explain. Well, it might take a, a little while, depending on your background, but it can be explained. So, there's a difference because Buddha's saying that what he experienced, his insight, can't be somehow. It's inconceivable, as opposed to the Archimedean one is conceivable. Now, for a moment, let's set aside the inconceivability and focus on the joke. Because old Siddhartha here suddenly got a joke that no one had told. That's kind of what happened. And after enjoying the humor and the exquisite beauty, it dawned on him. No one is going to get this joke. It's the most important thing he ever saw. And no one's going to get it. It can't be told. Now, it's sort of like a great bit that you might have heard at a stand-up comedy show. Or maybe you're watching a sitcom, or you, you know what it's like, though. You know, if you go to a stand-up show, and imagine it's really good. The comedian does, let's say, a 20-minute set. And as they deliver their last bit, imagine somebody really good. This is rare, you know, just a rare thing. And they're delivering their last bit, and the whole set just falls into place. And the comedian nails everything, the tone of voice, the timing, the facial expression. The bit sort of builds in its momentum, and it picks up something from earlier in the set, and it even picks up something from a a previous comedian, and also picks up things in the culture that are significant and, and parts of human experience. So it's just all there. And so by the end of the bit, you're doubled over in laughter. You know, you want to fall to the floor. It's so funny. It's the funniest material you've heard in years. And it's like your very soul has been dying to laugh like this. It's so cathartic. You feel yourself laughing your entire ball of stress away. It's gone. And when you see a friend of yours the next day, you desperately want to give them the great joy of this laughter, this incredible letting go, this grand appreciation of some aspect of the human condition. And so you try. And your friend responds with a vague smile. They say, oh, that's funny. And you you could just hear it. Yeah, yeah, it's funny. Yeah, that's great. And you, you know that it's somehow it's missing something. You say, no, but it was so funny. This is the best material I've heard in years. I guess you just had to be there. And they nod and they look at you. And maybe they know that what that experience is like, but the, it doesn't change the fact that they're not really getting it. And maybe even they're thinking to themselves, yeah, I don't, that doesn't sound funny to me. <laughs> they just, they might know that humor takes context, but they still might be thinking, yeah, but it doesn't actually sound funny. Now, maybe you wouldn't find yourself vexed in that situation. Maybe you just shrug your shoulders, you go along with your day. But then again, you didn't discover the specific gravity of the human condition. You didn't experience an insight so transformative that you are now, in a deep sense, no longer the same person as the one who innocently entered that comedy venue. Now, in fact, if you thought 
there were some deeply significant ethical, existential, cosmic insight offered by this comedian, if you truly felt this joke could make your friends suffer less and enjoy life more, you might get a little vexed and you might desperately want them to go to that comedy show. Now let's emphasize again the simultaneously mundane and provocative nature of what we find ourselves considering here. We need to keep in mind how perfectly ordinary it is to say that contextualized experience matters with regard to something like a joke or even a glass of wine, which we have to taste for ourselves in order to know it. And we also have to realize how perfectly radical it is to say this with respect to a philosophy of life. Somehow we can behave as if we have the same level of skill at philosophizing as anyone else in the history of earth, anyone else from any other context. And that's a strange thought. If we grew up in a household in which everyone spoke only fluent Spanish, we would naturally learn to speak Spanish with native fluency. And if no one in our household spoke fluent Spanish, we would have to get an education to learn it. And it might take a good bit of time and effort to achieve fluency. None of that comes as any surprise. Yet if we grow up in a household in which no one speaks, thinks, and acts with fluency in wisdom, love, and beauty, fluency, we may still consider ourselves as just about as wise as the ancient sages. I mean, not on reflection. If somebody said, well, are you as wise as the ancient sages? We might say no. But when we're talking and thinking about the things that they thought about, we just kind of assume a competence there. So if someone asks us, we really might sincerely demur. Oh, of course I'm not Socrates or the Buddha. But in practice, we behave as if we have no need of those sages. This is the strange thing, because it's not as if we all say, well, my goodness, we can't live a life well, except on the basis of wisdom, love, and beauty. I can't live on the basis of ignorance, but I'm not going to try to get fluency in the teachings of the sages. I mean, we don't do that. We don't sit around and say, well, let me seek the teachings of the sages and try to get fluency. The closest we get, of course, is in religion. We might study some of the teachings of of Jesus. But if you consider how limited those teachings are in terms of the, the volume, there's not a whole lot that we have to go on there. Buddha taught for, for over four decades. And then there's all this elaboration of the teachings. And, and sometimes the, the most we do is maybe read the Bible. And that's not a lot. Now, of course, we can do more. We can go to study groups and we can study Christian philosophy or Judaic philosophy and we can learn more. There are great sages in those traditions. But generally speaking, I think a lot of us live as if we don't need that fluency and we're not seeking it. We just kind of keep ourselves going along, thinking through how to live a human life and not seeking those fluent in the wisdom, love, and beauty that constitute a human life well lived. Every day 
we affirm an entire philosophy of life as if we really knew what we were doing, as if the whole world could rely on us to do things in the wisest, most loving, most beautiful ways, as if the world could rely on our fluency in speaking with it, communing with it. All we have to do is look at the state of the world, look at all the suffering beings and the collapsing ecologies, and we know that the world cannot actually rely on us. We know that we're not so fluent as we assume by default. You know, it's not a conscious statement. We don't stand up and say, no, I am fluent in wisdom, love, and beauty. I am fluent in communing with the great mystery. But that's our default behavior. And the trouble is we usually need a lot more than the recitation of a simple philosophical verse. The story of Sophia and Melanthea gives us an indication that these women needed contact with something. And as we told the way that we told the story is that they had spent time trying to learn wisdom, love, and beauty. And so Sophia herself had spent this time seeking the first teacher, then she and Melanthea stayed with that teacher for about a year, and then she went on, Sophia went on a physically demanding pilgrimage. She was out wandering by herself for almost a month. And then she stood in the presence of someone with a radically different quality of being. And this too forms part of the ecology or context that we have to consider. It's sort of like the way we can feel very free around certain people and feel rather tense around others. We might make a a joke with an old college friend that we would never make with our own mother, and we might laugh hard at that joke that we make with our old college friend, the, the joke that we would never dare make with our mother. And maybe that has nothing to do with the lewdness of the joke. It might be your first thought, oh, he's thinking about some terrible joke. That is... But no, it might not even be that it's a lewd joke. It just might have to be with a shared framework of experience. The kind of you-had-to-be-there joke. And your mother just wasn't there. And you can't give her the context that you and your college friend shared that was so funny. And we find something more subtle and profound here than we may have first realized. When Siddhartha first set out to find the meaning of life, he studied with various teachers and spiritual friends. And then at one point, he had starved and tortured himself nearly to death. And he may have been on the verge of suicide. At the very least, he seems to have come to a place of nearly giving up. We sometimes have to do that, just just finally come to a place where we feel like there's nothing left. We just, that's it. He really didn't know how to proceed. Socrates taught that moment. He revered that moment, the aporia. I don't know how to go forward. And again, contrast that with us. We go forward every day, every day. We keep going, we keep going. We don't have that fluency in wisdom, love, and beauty. And Siddhartha, after trying so hard, focusing just on that, just wanting that fluency, and he 
said, I don't know how to do it. I don't know how to get it. And then what happened at that aporia, at that place where he just didn't know how to go forward and thought, you know, I have to give up. A little girl appeared and gave him a bowl of milk and rice. And who is that little girl? That's the divine feminine. That's Sophia herself. Sophia is wisdom. And that's Sophia herself in her ever-youthful aspect. I always emphasize that Sophia has that aspect. Not Sophia from the story that we were telling, but I mean the divine Sophia, the primordial goddess of wisdom, the primordial awareness of the cosmos itself. She has an ever-youthful aspect, and she appeared to Siddhartha as that and offered him nourishment. And Siddhartha had the openness of mind and heart, that place where he was just stopped, everything stopped. And he just kind of gave up in a way. He let it all go. I don't know what to do. And that openness of mind and heart allowed him to receive that nourishment and recognize that he had to let go of self-torture. Now you see, in his palace life, when he was Prince Siddhartha, he had indulged in all manner of self-pleasure. And then in the spiritual life, he indulged in all manner of self-torture. And he saw that neither one will function for healing, for insight, for liberation. And this serves as an important image for all of us. Each of us and all of us will keep torturing ourselves and pleasuring ourselves until we've decided we've had enough. And Buddhists saw, okay, that's enough. That's enough of these extremes. And he wades into the Naranjara River. It's a ritual bathing. He's really renounced, renounced again. He renounced one time when he left the palace, and now he's renounced again. And he's purified. He slips into the flow of that river and crosses into the liminal space of the wild forest. And what does he do? He sits down and he somehow musters up the passion to decide he will not get up again until he dispels his own ignorance. He's looking for an end to all self-deception, an end to all bondage and suffering. And how? How will he arrive at it? Well, he still has a not-knowing mind. He's not knowing. He's let go of what he thinks he knows. And he's just now in a space of equanimity. He's crossed that river. He's been cleansed. He's submerged himself into that flow, and he's entered the wild, and he sits under that tree, and he recalls a time when he was a child. You see, Sophia had just appeared to him in her ever-youthful aspect. She appeared as a little girl, and now Siddhartha the adult remembers being a little boy. And as a little boy, he went to a festival, and while sitting under a rose apple tree, 
with all the dancing and drumming and everything going on, beautiful day, he spontaneously entered into a meditative state. Now at the time, as that little boy, he didn't understand what had happened. All he knew was that he experienced incredible joy while sitting under that tree. It just happened spontaneously with his beginner's mind. And now as a man who has studied meditation, he recognized that as a unique meditative state. And he said to himself under that tree, as the adult, he says to himself, now could it be that joy is the path that will lead me to what I seek? Joy. Now there's a man ready for a cosmic laugh. And not just any cosmic laugh, but the biggest one we could possibly experience. So he sits there under the Bodhi tree, and his mind becomes exceptionally clear, exceptionally well put together. He already had a well put together mind, a mind of clarity, a peace, love, joy. But now it gets amplified and deepened and expanded. He describes that mind under the tree as completely unperturbable and yet pliant, malleable, exquisitely sensitive, alive and a love. He realizes a mind of exceptional beauty. And then some really crazy stuff happens. He has to face fear and craving, and he has to ask Earth herself to bear witness for him. And because of the exceptional mind he has allowed to blossom, he transcends fear and craving, and Earth herself, nature herself, bears witness to the actions of this and other lifetimes. And then his exceptional mind reveals to him all his past lives, as well as the nature of life and death and the causes of suffering. Now that may seem wild, but that's not such a... Anybody can get a taste of what he experienced with some practice. And then he experiences supreme awakening. Now that is not going to happen for all of us, and certainly not remembering all of our past lives. That's not going to remember happen for all of us. But Buddha became Buddha by experiencing supreme awakening, and this is what he says as this is happening, or after it happens. He says, House builder, you are seen. You will not build a house again. Your rafters broken, the ridgepole destroyed, gone to the unformed, the mind has come to the end of craving. That's a pretty funny situation. Enlightenment involves seeing a house builder. What is this house builder? The house builder 
in some sense, is the architect of our self-deception. And it's really funny to see how we have deceived ourselves. It's the height of hilarity. After Buddha experiences this, he then stays under the Bodhi tree, stays sitting there for seven days. He's in bliss. And after seven days, he examines reality carefully and he sees the interdependence of all things. So seven days of bliss. And with that mind, he now turns toward the interwovenness of all things, the, the very nature of reality. And he looks and he says, this is like this because that is like that. When this is, that is. When this isn't, that isn't. When this ends, that ends. Now, there are some tricky aspects to that expression. Notice how this resonates with the Ye Dhamma what has causes, right? These are the causes. He's seeing them. And one of the tricky aspects of this comes to the fact that we cannot strictly limit this insight into something inner or outer. And sometimes people do this. When Buddha said, this is like this because that is like that, he was observing his own psychophysical processes, but also he was in a forest, in the wild. And Buddhist philosophy makes it clear that there is no non-relational entity. None. Everything arises as radical interwovenness. Now that's not the same thing as oneness in a simplistic sense. This interwovenness transcends the duality of the one and the many. And so that's part of why noticing the psychophysical processes and the forest. He could, you could look at a tree right now. If you see one out your window, or you go to see one later, and you could say that to the tree. You could look at that tree, and you could say, this is like this, because that is like that. And you can look at any two things, but imagine first that you look at yourself, and you say, you put your hand on your heart and you say, this is like this, and then you look at the tree and you say, because that is like that. When this is, again, your hand over your heart, gesturing toward yourself, that is gesturing toward the tree. When this isn't, gesturing toward yourself, that isn't. When this ends, that ends. And then you could reverse it. And then you would do that with your own psychophysical processes. And this whole thing is hilarious. I know, it doesn't... Are you laughing? It's, it's as funny as the discovery of the architect of our own self-deception. 
Laughter that makes our bellies sore often comes on the heels of or simply altogether with ego-bursting insights. Spiritual traditions around the world agree. Once we start getting the cosmic jokes, we start to lighten up. That's what enlightenment means. It's part of its meaning. And it's why Buddha gets depicted with a smile, I think. And we all have Hotai to remind us of that too, the laughing Buddha. That he really is that archetypal aspect of Buddha that is that sheer cosmic comedy. And Buddha showed us that the path of love wisdom is the path of joy. When we get in touch with the basic feel of life, it makes us smile, maybe makes us laugh. And when we smile, when we laugh, we draw close to the basic feel of life. Every time, every time we smile or laugh, we're drawing close to reality. Now, of course, you can go hear a comedy show and you won't come back enlightened. It's not so simple. But we're there. We're on the meniscus of it. All we have to do is release into it. If we properly ready the mind, then we might find our smile breaking us through into insight, transformative insight. And at that point, the smile might have already given way to laughter or tears or laugh tears. Instead of laughters, laugh tears. That's James Joyce's little coinage. A moment of laughter can create a temporary rift in our habitual mind, a rift in what the Buddhist philosophers call samsara, which is our overarching habit of actively misknowing the nature of self and reality. Samsara is self-deception and self-distraction. That's what the architect is building for us, samsara, suffering. Meditation practices allow us to calm the mind enough to be able to see the nature of mind and the nature of reality. Meditation creates a rift in our habitual mind. And the comedy comes from seeing that the habitual mind is an artificial rift in reality. So that's what's funny, if you really think about what I just said. Then meditation doesn't create a rift, it heals a rift. It's the ending of a rift. However we look at it, the point is the joke is on us. When we're stuck in suffering, the joke is on us, and we can be freed from it. Even a little bit makes such a big difference. Now for old Sid, after seeing all his past lives and after seeing the whole play of life and death and after seeing the house builder and then abiding in bliss and then seeing the total interwovenness of the cosmos, a thought arose in Buddha's awareness. And the thought said this. This is what arose in Buddha's mind after all that. All that he just experienced. He says, well, he didn't say, the thought appears, the thought appears, it's no good to dwell without reverence. It's no good to dwell without reverence. But to whom could I direct true 
reverence. He's thinking about how life itself is learning and how life itself demands reverence and deference to that which transcends the ego. And Buddha realizes he can't have any he can't have the same reverence for human beings as teachers anymore that he would have had when he was a student because he has fully awakened to the highest wisdom, love, and beauty possible for a human being. Nevertheless, he still wants to live in reverence as part of presencing wisdom, love, and beauty. And he directly sees that he must now live in reverence for the very nature of reality he has discovered, that he has liberated himself into. He has discovered the essence of the wild. And so Buddha will live now in reverence for the wild, in reverence for nature, in reverence for reality in its essence and manifestation. Now that presents a profound image. Now first let's acknowledge again that Buddha spent seven days under the Bodhi tree, the world tree, the cosmic axis. And then he looked at the interwovenness of all things. And that's even not a great way to say it. We're stuck with language. It's not all things are interwoven. It's that there is nothing but interwovenness. Every time you try to find a thing, you only find interwovenness. And that part of the mythopoetic image tells us that the interwovenness goes far, far, far beyond our habitual consciousness. When Buddha sat under that tree, he had already cultivated an exceptional mind, a mind of peace, a mind of clarity and luminosity, a mind of love and compassion, a mind of incredible well-put-togetherness, and also a mind of profound joy and even bliss. And even that mind didn't suffice to reveal the nature of reality. He had to sit through a understanding of his past lives and the whole play of life and death. He had to see that. And then he had to see the house builder. Of course, he had to transcend fear and desire. And he had to exit once and for all the well-built fabrication of delusion. And then he sat for seven days in total freedom and bliss. He opened his eyes and he saw the interwovenness with absolute clarity he realized the non-duality of wisdom and wildness. I think that these days, the interconnectedness of all things is just a bumper sticker. We hear that phrase and we imagine we understand it. We believe in it, how everything's connected. But this image of Buddha, this mythopoetic image of Buddha, tells us we don't. To fully understand the interwovenness would mean enlightenment and freedom from all suffering. It would mean a 
perfect mind, a mind of wisdom, love, and beauty, unless we feel confident enough to assert ourselves as world-turning sages, we really need to acknowledge that we do not understand interwovenness well enough, and we therefore need an attitude of great humility, all the more so if we intellectually say, yes, I believe in it. I do, I do think things are all connected. Our science affirms that. And our philosophies, our spiritual traditions affirm it. So th- this means human beings need to pause. We need to stop the way Buddha just said, okay, I, I, I don't know what I'm doing. And Socrates tried to get people to say, will you please admit you don't know what you're doing? Just stop. Human beings need to pause, to stop, and Earth herself bears witness to that. She bore witness to Buddha in his readiness for wisdom. She bore witness to his actions across lifetimes that he really, really sought that fluency in wisdom, love, and beauty, and that was part of how he could then enter into it. And I think she bears witness to the fact that we are not ready. We haven't really dedicated ourselves enough to seek that fluency. So Earth herself says to us that she must bear witness to our ignorance. And she knows very well that human beings are not sitting under the tree of life with a mind of exceptional beauty. Earth bears witness to the fact that we very much need to renounce our ignorance and seek the true nature of self and reality. Buddha made it clear that what he realized when he entered fully and completely into the great mystery is something subtle and profound. And we must take the utmost care not to fool ourselves into thinking we truly understand it and that we must also have the courage to face the consequences of our ignorance and begin to make things right. And so we should appreciate the luminous nature of the example he sets when he shows that enlightenment does not mean we have gone beyond the need for reverence. You see, because that means all the more so for us who haven't achieved enlightenment, all the more so do we need reverence. On this side of enlightenment, we need reverence for excellent teachers, reverence for true friends, friends invested in our spiritual growth. And we need reverence for holistic teachings. Taken together, this means that we too must cultivate reverence for life, reverence for the great mystery, and reverence for the non-duality of wisdom and wildness. The only thing Buddha didn't need ordinary reverence for was teachers. But he understood that he could thereby have a fuller reverence for the wild, reverence for the teachings of reality as they manifest moment to moment, He thus entered the most profound path of serenity and wonder 
and he gives us an embodied example of enlightenment as the realization of reverence for life and the realization of the sacredness of the cosmos. Not the intellectual understanding of these things, but the fullest realization of them. In walking this holy path, Buddha shows us what it means to live a life of inconceivable intimacy. We've taken a nice little journey, starting with our story all the way to this life of inconceivable intimacy. The point of all of it is not really a sharp or singular point. We've made a number of important suggestions. Among other things, it all has to do with a general appreciation of the strangeness of philosophical insight how that insight depends on many subtle factors, and how the most profound insights proved challenging to explain. But keep in mind that Buddha didn't just hide in the ineffability. He spent over four decades teaching, and he provided an exceptional science of mind. Really, really exceptional teachings. If you read the Pali Canon, every time I read the Pali Canon, it's thousands of pages because the guy taught for decades. Any time I re- read even the Pali Canon, I am amazed at the level of genius this guy had. And then, when you read other things in the tradition, and it's not the only philosophy, of course there are lots of other philosophies, but what's nice about Buddhist philosophy is that it is quite supportive of other paths. If you happen to be a Christian, perfectly helpful and reasonable and healthy and vitalizing to learn some of the Buddhist philosophy, the Buddhist science of mind, learn about the mind and how to liberate it as a way to know God. It's a way for you to know God. It doesn't interfere with what God is for you, stop you from following the Ten Commandments or anything else. And so it's a very, very powerful philosophy. And he definitely did not hide behind the inconceivability. It shows the difference between, say, what happens if we take five grams of psilocybin or mushrooms, you wouldn't take five grams of the uh, concentrated extract, but if you took five grams of mushrooms and you have a big seeming epiphany, are you going to produce what Buddha produced over those four decades? It doesn't happen. And so we see, wow, yes, it might have been challenging for him to explain really, he couldn't say this is the experience and now that I've explained it to you, you understand it. It's not like the Pythagorean theorem. That you can explain to anybody. Nevertheless, we see that he understood the mind. And so although Buddha felt that explaining his insight would challenge him, he nevertheless poured his love and creativity into teaching us everything he could that would allow us to arrive at that insight for ourselves. He thus bequeathed to us all an incredibly sophisticated and comprehensive philosophy of life, including a detailed psychology of liberation. He may have felt that people with little motivation would likely misunderstand it so deeply as to make it useless, but he also knew 
and he came to see quite clearly in his students that humble yet passionate seekers like Sophia and Melanthea or Kema and Upalavana would arrive at transformative healing and insight by means of what he taught. And that road remains open for any of us with the passion and humility to let go of what we think we know, to be honest about the need to seek fluency in wisdom, love, and beauty, to give passion to it, to enter the path of mystery, the path of wisdom, love, and beauty, the path of wildness and wonder. And you can start on that path right now by carrying with you the spirit of the verse that brought a spark of insight to Sophia and Melanthea. Consider one of your most common experiences of suffering or limitation or stuckness. Maybe you experience anxiety and worry. Maybe you experience a lot of reactivity and anger. Maybe you get caught up in a lot of manipulation and control or craving and clinging and attachment. Whatever the particular kind of suffering, can you look at its causes and conditions? For instance, when craving arises, look at the nature of it. Look at the objects of your craving and the kind of mind, the kind of mind that gives rise to craving. What is that mind really like? What are those objects of craving really like? How do the objects keep the craving going? When you consider the causes and conditions of craving, what thoughts or beliefs go with the craving? What is the nature of those thoughts and beliefs? Can you locate them? What color are the thoughts? What size are the thoughts? How do they arise? When anxiety arises, for just a moment, let go of all the supposed external impulses or conditions that seem to explain why you feel anxious. You know, you're anxious and you say, well, I know it's because I have, I have to do this, I'm worried about that. Let go of all the external things for just a moment and look at the essence of that anxiety. Where does it come from internally? What is its internal cause? How does it abide in the mind? Where is it located? Now, we can also apply this kind of inquiry to the state of the world. We, of course, talked about taking the this-is-like-this thinking into a forest and seeing a tree. And we have to keep in mind that although the, the phrase says this is like this because that is like that, in Buddhist philosophy, really, generally speaking, there is no effect that has a single cause and no cause that has only a single effect. And we also want to take this kind of inquiry into the general state of the world, this modern world, this modern context. So if we look around and we see any level of injustice, aggression, violence, intolerance, and ignorance, we can ask, what causes and conditions make this possible? We make the world by means of our activity and we keep making the kind of world that degrades the conditions of life we all depend on. We don't have to keep making capitalism. 
we could make a better world, a world of true democracy and freedom, a world of true wisdom and justice. And that begins by seeing the causes and conditions we currently keep in place. In addition to this sort of inquiry, we can practice the reverence for life Buddha embodied. And we can practice the non-duality of wisdom and wildness. All the great sages invite us to seek initiation, to seek out excellent teachers, and to revere all good teachings to take care of wisdom, love, and beauty wherever we find them. Thankfully, this living, loving world abounds in teachings. Everything we perceive arises in total interwovenness. And if we look with care, we can sense everything that arises as a symbolic teaching. Everything. It's an astonishing and wondrous way to relate with the world, sensing the causes and conditions of peace, love, healing, and joy, the causes and conditions of deep trust and great wonder that we can discover each moment. And in the living, loving world, we can begin to slow down let go of what we think we know and sense the inconceivable interwovenness of each thing such that no effect in our world has a single cause and no cause has a single effect. Everything arises as a mystery which the conscious mind can never contain but which the soul can enter into and bring to realization. If you have questions, suggestions, or stories about your experiences of initiation into the mysteries of life or insights into the causes and conditions of suffering and bondage or happiness and liberation, send them in through dangerouswisdom.org we might bring some of them into a future contemplation. Until then, this is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, reminding you that your soul and the soul of the world are not two things. Take good care of them.